This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. A couple years ago, when somebody decides they're going to write a cookbook, who, you know, they would not have thought that the holidays in 2020 would be what they are. So I might have planned a big, you know, party cookbook or entertaining cookbook, and that might be a bit of a bomb. Other people were lucky enough to say more comfort food because that's right on point. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Bussin, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn how proteins can heal your body. We'll hear the annual holiday cookbook gift guide. We'll find out how COVID-19 impacts your brain. And lastly, we'll discuss peanuts and your blood sugar level. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian owned and has been GMP certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all natural herbs, vitamins and minerals in their formulations. The company is site licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has a two-year postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. Welcome back to the show, Gordon. How are you? Good, Jamie. It's nice to be back. Enjoying the cold weather? Well, as much as one can enjoy the cold weather, but yes, my dog is happy, which means she likes to go for walks, which means I'm getting more exercise. So that's the most positive spin I can put on it. You? Very good. I'm enjoying it. You know, it's change of pace, but as I said, I'm missing the warm weather. It's like anything else. We miss what we don't have, you know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So today we're going to talk about protein, but we're going to talk about it in a way that most people don't really think about. Let's set the table here a bit. Okay. Why is protein so important for our health? Well, one of the major reasons protein is important is because everything in our body more or less revolves around protein. For example, the antibodies that you're going to make to fight off COVID, the antibodies that you're going to make to fight off any type of disease, right, is based on protein. Oh. Your muscles are protein. Your enzymes that use to break down all of your, your food is protein. Protein is one of the most useful, it's a building block of most of, of your body. So we need to get protein from outside. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about protein is that in most of your food sources, you normally get about, there's roughly about 20 common amino acids. Okay? And depending on who you read, some people say 22, 23, but 20 is usually the most common ones that most people will think about. Okay? Of that, you have of these amino acids, oh, let me back up here. I have to define what an amino acid is. Sure. What people don't realize about protein is all proteins are made up of individual chemical compounds called amino acids, right? Mm-hmm. And these amino acids are basically structural components, okay? 
And what happens is when your body is going to incorporate these proteins, your body takes the protein from outside. So you eat a piece of meat, for example. Mm-hmm. You get plant-based protein, all of those. It breaks it down to these individual components called amino acids. Okay. The body then absorbs these amino acids and then rebuilds or resynthesizes all the different proteins that are needed based on whatever amino acids can come in. Okay, okay, so it's important, I guess, then the proteins that we're taking in have the appropriate amino acids, right? That's right. So what's important, you have to have the full wide range of these amino acids, what I call the 20 common amino acids. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. So you have to bring those in. Now, even in amino acids, the body has the ability to convert one kind of amino acid to the second type of amino acid using biochemical processes. Okay? Mm-hmm. But that takes time. That takes energy, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you can supply a lot of these amino acids in the diet, it makes the rebuilding of tissue much more efficient, the building of enzymes much more efficient. And then you have a bunch of amino acids, which we call the essential amino acids, which the bodies cannot convert from one amino acid type to another amino acid type. The essential amino acids is if you don't get those from your diet, you're in trouble because the body has no way of converting it. Then you have some of the amino acids called non-essential amino acids, which the body will take the essential amino acids and biochemically convert them to the, to the non-essential amino acids. Right. So the term essential and non-essential is basically a term from diet. Can you get it or you can't get it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things about protein is not all protein is, is the same. For example, here is made up of a protein called keratin. Right. Mm-hmm. And I noticed I said the word protein. But our bodies do not have the ability to digest here. Like if, if you were to swallow here, it will go in as here and it will come back out as here. All right. So we do not have the ability to break down keratin into amino acids, you know. And so we have to look at the quality of the protein that we can get also. So if we're taking, as I say, as being omnivores, we eat meat and we eat vegetables, right? Yes. Vegetables do have, or plant-based proteins. You can get a lot of protein from plants. Yes. The biggest downside to plants is that you don't get uh, a lot of plants don't have certain essential amino acids. Right? Ah. Now, as a vegetarian, though, you can if you take your your plant proteins and you ju- you mix it judiciously, meaning that you know you have one plant that is high in this amino acid and the other plant is not high. If you combine it properly, you can get all your essential aminos in your plant. Okay. Mm-hmm. But the downside to that is that we are animals. All right, and when we eat our protein, sometimes the plant-based aminos or the plant-based proteins, we don't get the right mix of of essential amino acids. Okay. Right. Uh, let me let me use an example to illustrate what I'm talking about. Sure. Let's say I'm trying to rebuild my joints, okay, mm-hmm. or subcutaneous um, tissue. So something like collagen. People hear about collagen all the time. Yep. All right. To build collagen, you need an amino acid called proline, you need another amino acid called hydroxyproline, right? Now, proline and hydroxyproline, you can get from animal sources. So if you eat a lot of tendon meats, right, mm-hmm. uh, or ligament-type meats, you know, you get a lot of collagen in your, in your diet. The collagen 
is then absorbed not as collagen but as the individual amino acid, which is proline and hydroxyproline. Then your body takes that and rebuilds it into the um, ligaments and tendons, right? Mm-hmm. But let's say even if you're eating regular meat, you may not even be getting a lot of proline and hydroxyproline. So your body has to try and save that up as much as it can, right? And it can convert it from, from some of the essential aminos, right? But let, let's say we, we get plant source now. Plant sources are usually not very high in proline and hydroxyproline, right? Mm-hmm. So if you are eating a lot of vegetarian diet, you have to eat a lot of a certain type of plant before you can even get that type of amino acid content into you, right? Okay. So this is just a little bit about the essential amino acids versus the non-essential. One of the things I wanted to talk to about is the efficiency of these aminos, right? Okay. Or the efficiencies of getting the aminos into you. Because if I was trying, again, using my, my analogy of, about um, subcutaneous tissue, right? Extracellular matrix, ligaments, etc. If I want to build my joints properly, it's much more efficient if I use proline and hydroxyproline from a direct source, meaning that I get it directly in my food, as opposed to me taking some something called an, an essential amino acid by chemically converting it into proline and then incorporating it into my tissue. Right. Right? The analogy mm-hmm. I, I'd like to use is that, let's say I'm building a brick wall. I know people love my brick wall analogy. Love your brick wall. <laughs> yeah, I can be, if I give you bricks, right? Preformed bricks. You can build that brick wall fairly quickly as long as you have the cement, you have the water, the sand, etc., etc., etc. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, if I just give you clay dirt and give you water, you can still build a brick wall. It's just it'll take you a lot longer because you've got to take the water, take the clay, mix it up, make the bricks up, dry it in the sun, and then use the bricks to build your brick wall. Right, so you, you see the efficiency is a lot better if you can if you have it pre-made sitting there waiting for you. That makes a lot of sense. Let's focus on protein as it pertains to the healing process. Protein Wh- and the healing process is very important because let, let's talk about illnesses, for example. Yeah. Right. If you're ill, what happens? You a lot of people lose weight, mm-hmm. right? And the reason they lose weight is because there's, during the illness process, even the the white blood cells, the the enzymes that are used for fighting off the bacteria, the viruses, etc., are protein based. If you're not getting enough protein in your diet, guess where it's coming from? It's taking it out of your tissue, right? And that's why a lot of people, when you if you're ill and and so on, you waste away. Basically, you get thin and thin, your muscle mass gets smaller and smaller, right? Mm-hmm. So. Sometimes what I say to people, especially if you're recovering from illness, make sure you increase your intake of protein. Now, the biggest problem with increasing the intake of protein is that if you take a normal steak or eat a piece of chicken breast, chicken breast has, I think, 18% protein. So if you consume 100 grams of chicken breast, right, white meat, yep. you get 18 grams of protein. Right on 100 grams. Mm-hmm. Right, so that means you have 82 grams of fat, water, right, and minerals. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now the fat, etc. You still need all that, but that 18 grams for most people is very difficult to, to get into you because most people to consume 100 grams of protein, your body has to really digest out that 100 that digest that piece of meat. 
Yes. All right. So sometimes I say for people who are recuperating from illness, etc., the easiest way of getting it into is to take something like a whey protein and isolate. So a whey protein source of, of protein or a milk protein source. Because there's right. a higher proportion of protein to what That's you're right. ingesting. You get a okay. much higher proportion of protein to the other things, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there are people out there who have issues with dairy. Yes. Right. And if you have issues with dairy, some unfortunately there are some people who can't take a dairy because they may be allergic to the to the dairy proteins. Mm-hmm. Right. It could be the whey. It could be the casein. It could be any any number of things that they're allergic to. Right. So those people, unfortunately, they have to try and get another source of protein. And fortunately, today there are a lot of plant-based proteins. Right. Yes. I personally prefer the whey and the, uh, and, the, and the dairy source protein or even egg-based protein. And the reason for that is the protein that you get from these sources are easily digested. Your body can digest it a lot easier than if you were to take um, a plant-based protein. And more importantly, secondly, the type of protein that you're getting, the amino acid mix is there. Right? If you think about the growth of a baby, right, be it a, a baby calf, a human baby, anything. The reason they grow so well and so easily is because all the essential amino acids and all the non-essential amino acids are present in the milk, right, Mm -hmm. in the right proportion for growth. If we're trying to focus on getting more protein into our system because we've had an illness, either we're wasting away or we have sores, what percentage more protein should we be ingesting to our normal diet? When we are wasting away the key here is to get as much protein as into you as possible. Okay. Right? But we, we we still have to balance things out. Right. Even though I'm talking about protein, I, I don't want it to seem that you shouldn't be taking your fats, you shouldn't be right. taking your carbohydrates, you, you need your trace minerals, etc. Right. Just consuming straight protein and nothing else but protein again is not the end. Is not the best thing for you if you're trying to recover because your body needs all of the other things. Right. But is there, like, so should we be, like, if I'd lost a few pounds because of an illness, should I be increasing my protein and other intake by 10%, 20%? If you have recovered, right, you will naturally put that weight back on. And yes, you should increase your intake of protein. But what I'm trying to say is that when people are ill, they should definitely try and increase their intake of protein. Because that intake of protein, you're you're giving the body the resources that it needs to fight off the illness, etc., Right. Yeah. This is why I look at people who are fighting off, say, the effects of cancer. Yes. Right? One of the things with cancer is that you lose a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, there's many different reasons why you lose a lot of weight. One of the major reasons is that your appetite is not there. Right. Right. Yeah. And you need the calories. And calories is good no matter from which source you're getting it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's important also to increase your intake of protein. Right. So this is why I would suggest for people who are uh, suffering from a debilitating disease like cancer or any type of AIDS or so, try to increase your intake of protein just to support the tissue, uh, to support the body, to give it the resources that it needs to fight off the effects of whatever disease that you're fighting off. What's your take on those liquid shots that people take? You know, they're touted in drugstores. You know, there's a little like a little bottle of it. You know, you drink it and it's supposed to have increased protein. Are you a fan of those products? You know, I'm not a fan of those. And people who take those things really are not the people who are ill. If you are healthy and not a problem, 
you know what? It's convenience. Yeah. Okay? Yep. But if you're ill, definitely you should be taking a high-end dairy-type protein, right? Or for vegans, again, a, a high-end plant protein base. Okay, but as I said, I think the plant protein bases are never as good as the dairy source or even the egg-based protein. Got it. A lot of people take those liquid shots are basically, you know, you're exercising. It's an easy way of getting some protein into you. As long as you have a good diet to go with it, you're usually okay. Okay. Well, that sounds like good advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Very welcome. Nice to talk to you. That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss cookbook gifts for the holidays. I'm the tonic. Alamax Canada is the company that delivers real, bioactive, stabilized allicin. Using only the freshest garlic from Spain, Alamax is the trusted source for a high-quality and effective allicin supplement. The manufacturers of Alamax have dedicated their time to researching this fascinating plant and all of its antimicrobial and antibacterial benefits. To fight infection and stay well, take Alamax. For more information, visit alamax.ca. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for many years. And since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. Hi. So today we're doing a bit of a tradition here. It's, you know, all the time that you've been on, it's been years. We do a holiday cookbook gift guide. And this year's no different. We're going to get to it early to give people a chance to actually order their books online, right? Yes. And I want people to know I take sort of great responsibility for this. You know, I as a ton of cookbooks come out in the fall, just like other books, because it's gift time. And I really, you know, I really look at all of them. I really try to curate them for you because sometimes things sound good or look good. But when I look at them, I kind of go, eh not so interesting or not so different or I would never make anything like this. So this is definitely from my perspective, but this is my recommendations to you. And I think that's, you know, we're all looking at the internet for our information, but what's missing is somebody to curate that information. So I think you are providing an invaluable service. (laughs) Thank you. And I will just say that if you want to do, you know, if people want to do their own looking, there are best of lists already out The New York Times always publishes one. The Kitchen, which is a website, eater.com. And you'll see a lot of overlap amongst those. But I saw there were still so many. uh, It would be hard for somebody to choose. Okay, so let's start with sort of a bigger picture. And that is, what are you seeing in terms of trends for cookbooks? Because there are trends in cookbooks. There are, definitely. And I was thinking about it because, you know, a couple of years ago when somebody decides they're going to write a cookbook who, you know, they would not have thought 
that the holidays in 2020 would be what they are. So I might have planned a big, you know, party cookbook or entertaining cookbook, and that might be a bit of a bomb. Other people were lucky enough to say more comfort food because that's right on point. But nonetheless, I do see a trend for whatever reason or trends. Definitely, you know, home cooking, cooking from your pantry, comfort foods, you know, all that stuff when when we were restricted and what we could buy and how often we could shop Mm -hmm. and we're stressed and we need home cooking that's going to make us feel better. That's continuing in all the cookbooks that I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. Also, plant-based cooking, still going strong. Still a lot of vegan, plant-based, vegetable-forward cookbooks. Even if you're not vegan, people are still interested in cooking more of more plant-based food. And the last thing that I see is, you know, the armchair traveling, bringing the world to us, particularly when we aren't able to travel, but we might want to think about the places that we've been or wanted to go to and see what we can recreate in our homes. And I would say that, and we've talked about this before, but I see cookbooks from other places, places that are less familiar to North Americans. I'd say I can't, I mean, every place is familiar to those who live there, but, you know, less, less common. A lot of cookbooks out there focusing on different kinds of cuisines, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Toronto, we're able to get a lot of the ingredients, even if they're more obscure to the North American palate. So that's mm-hmm. good, too. All right, let's focus on some of the books that you've had a look at and that you would recommend for those looking to buy gifts. Sure. So one of them, which I I will add that you made fun of me about when we first got, was Sheet Pan Chicken, 50 Simple and Satisfying Ways to Cook Dinner by an author called Kathy Irway. Now, the title explains what it is. 50 Sheet Pan Chicken Recipes is pretty specific, but on the other hand, assuming you're not a vegetarian, people cook a lot of chicken. Yep. And sheet pan recipes are becoming very popular because it's everything on one pan, you know, the chicken, the vegetables, the sides, everything together cooking, you know, you might add something at a different point in time, but it's, you know, less mess, more convenient. And, you know, I thought it was a little funny when I got the book, but I was really impressed with the recipes. It's practical. It covers a whole different kinds of cuisines from across the world and the recipes are legit. So I would recommend that one. I think it's a good one. This is the way people, most people really cook, right? Like you don't, like it's not complicated stuff, but it's stuff that you would use every single week. And that's probably more relevant to most people getting a cookbook. So a very practical book. I agree. What's next? Okay. Diala's Kitchen by Diala Canelo. I like this one. This was Canadian. Like I don't like to only talk about American cookbooks. Like we are Canadian and she is a Canadian chef and blogger. She grew up in the Dominican Republic and she's lived all over the world. She's also a trained chef. And she brings her travel experiences to the kitchen and uses them to create recipes. It's a vegetarian and pescatarian book, so no meat, but there's fish and shellfish. And, you know, when I looked at this, I just looked at recipe after recipe, and I thought, wow, like, these all look good to me. And they're very simple. Like, there's no cooking all day type of recipes. This is a book for getting dinner on the table. I mean, there's definitely influences from her background. So there's, 
you know, there's plantains, there's avocados, there's coconut milk, there's cilantro, which I hate, but if you like, you could add it in. So, you know, I see that, but there's also Asian, European, Australian, Mexican recipes. I feel like it's something that it's a book that I might write, you know, if I was traveling and I wanted to kind of create some of the things that I tasted when I came back home. So it's a good one. Pretty healthy stuff, too. Sounds good. What else do you say? East. There's a book called East by a woman named Mira Sadha. She, uh, it's 120 vegetarian and vegan recipes from Bangalore to Beijing. So again, the title kind of speaks for itself. It's really simple recipes. Like probably, you know, you're going to have a lot of ingredients already. You don't necessarily have to go to a specialty foods store. You know, for example, in a Korean recipe that calls for what might be the sweet Korean soy sauce, she gives you a way to mix, you know, honey or agave and soy sauce to recreate it. So you don't have to make a special trip. And her recipes are all like really, you know, short number of ingredients, easy to get dinner on the table. And they range from, you know, Indian, Indonesian, Japanese, Chinese, like there's a whole range of recipes and they're all vegan and vegetarian. So a good practical cookbook. And she's written a number of books, this particular author, so she knows what she's talking about. And there's another Asian cookbook on your list, which is the next one, yeah? Yeah, Coconut and Sambal, which that's just focused on Indonesian recipes. And it looks so good. Just got it. I've eaten at Little Sister in Toronto, which Mm -hmm. is Indonesian food. And we had Indonesian food in Amsterdam, which has a lot of Indonesian restaurants. And it's good. It's like Thai. It's spicy, sweet, salty, sour. And this one, you know, the recipes are a little bit more complex than East that I was just talking about, but not overly so. Like, they're also doable. I have a feeling that they will taste very authentic. And you would also learn something about the culture and the cuisine. So I um, I'm just got it, but I'm looking forward to cooking from this. You know, so they've got, like, chicken satay, but the aromatic chicken soup, prawn coconut curry, nazi goreng, which is a, a rice dish. Lots of good things to try. Yeah, I saw the book, too. It, it does look good. So let's move on to stuff that's near and dear to you, and that is baking. Yes, dessert. There's so many dessert cookbooks, but here are the ones, here are my top picks. Snacking Cakes by a blogger called Yossi Arefi. It's 50 everyday cake recipes. Now, I like my fancy cakes. I like looking at them, but that's not what I make, you know, especially now. Sometimes we just need a little cake and we need it stat and we need it based on what we already have. Like this, everything doesn't require a mixer, can be whipped up pretty quickly. I decided on the weekend to make a cake and there was about 10 or 12 that I wanted to make. I had all the ingredients already, you know, it was my choice. Did I want to make, you know, chocolate olive oil cake with raspberries? Did I want to make mint chocolate cake with malted milk powder, banana cake with almond butter, berry cream cheesecake? Like there, all these things, all easy, but not necessarily things that you would immediately think of and all in one place. So a really cute little book that I would recommend. Also, in a, a broader cookbook, Dessert Person by Claire Saffitz of Bon Appetit magazine. So she does a lot of videos. If you have younger people in your life, they may well have been watching her cooking videos that she was doing for a long time. They're very popular. But she's now come out with this sort of generic 
dessert book, and it's designed to make baking accessible, and the recipes are delicious. It's not basic, though. It's more that she tells you very clearly how to make the recipe, but the recipes aren't simple, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, salty nut tart with rosemary, rice pudding cake with mango caramel, plum galette with polenta and pistachios, lots of yummy-sounding things to me. Interesting combinations, different flowers, additional spices. There is some overlap, for sure, in all the baking books that I see, but that's okay. Yeah. I looked at the book. It did seem like there were some unique recipes there. Mm -hmm. Any other dessert trends or ideas? Pies, pies, everything. There's about five pie books that have come out. And I agree when I was talking to our daughter, Sarah, and she said, less is more when it comes to pie. You know, how many times do you make something very different as much as I like pie? But I did really like Pie Camp by Kate McDermott because the instructions and the techniques were particularly helpful. I liked her pictures. I liked she had a whole bunch of different pie crusts and different ways to make them, you know, depending on what you have in your kitchen and how you like to make it. And of course, the pies look good. So that's one of the many pie books that have come out that I would recommend. There's also one called 100 Cookies by Sarah Kiefer, and for cookie lovers, particularly around the holiday time, you can't go wrong with cookies. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. What are we going to cover next month when you're back? Well, we're going to talk about combating cooking fatigue, and we'll talk about a couple of the books that we talked about today in a bit more detail, but, you know, how to deal with the doldrums of cooking all the time now that we have less options available to us. Fantastic. That was Naomi Bussin. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss COVID-19's impact on the brain. On The Tonic. Need better sleep? Brought to you by Ultramedics Supreme, adjustable bed, sleep apnea, arthritis, and back pain. I've had all of them, and I'm ready for relief. Find rest with the Supreme, the only adjustable bed that allows you to customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar position with the push of a button. Black Friday specials are on now. Get free sheets and $1,200 off the Supreme adjustable base. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep. Western University of Health Sciences is a nonprofit graduate university for the health professions located in Pomona, California, and Lebanon, Oregon. The university has the widest array of graduate health sciences in America and confers degrees in biomedical sciences, dental medicine, health sciences, medical sciences, nursing, optometry, osteopathic medicine, pharmacy, physical therapy, physician assistant studies, podiatric medicine, and veterinary medicine. The university is dedicated to educating tomorrow's healthcare professionals with a combination of scientific excellence and a humanistic, compassionate approach to patient care. For more information, you can visit their website at www.westernu.edu. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Daniel R. Wilson, MD, PhD, is the president of Western University of Health Sciences. 
Dr. Wilson is a past president of the American Neuropsychiatric Association and has been an invited lecturer at more than 200 universities or professional societies worldwide. His research includes more than 350 formal scholarly communications, including more than 100 refereed reports, chapters, or other submissions, and more than 100 presentations at national and international meetings. He's been principal investigator on more than 80 grants. Dr. Wilson has a BA from Yale, an MD from Iowa, and a PhD in anthropology from Cambridge, and has completed his psychiatric residency at Harvard. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I am fine. Thank you very much. Well, you know, I'm happy that you're on the show today because I think a lot of North Americans are focusing on the impact that COVID is potentially having on our physical selves. But my personal view is that we really haven't been paying enough attention to what it's doing to our brains and our emotions and all that other good stuff. Do you agree with me? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I think, you know, initially this bizarre new worldwide pandemic with manifestations of very broad range and severity in the body, particularly the respiratory system and the cardiovascular system, absorbed all of the attention and really overwhelmed uh, medical professionals. But as the pandemic has evolved, it's become clearer that after the resolution of the acute illness, people have a wide range, many people have a wide range of ongoing physical and psychological issues with it. And those are the people who are directly infected, to say nothing of the psychological burden for society more generally uh, with the social isolation and the concerns about the economy. It looked like we were heading to a worldwide depression six months ago. We're not out of the woods yet, but the supply chain in many countries got stressed to the point where it was unclear if food was going to be available. So there is a, is a host of stressors that affect, I think, everyone in some way with this pandemic, which is totally unprecedented in our lifetimes. It's unlike anything any of us has ever experienced before. Yeah, I agree with you. How are you seeing it manifesting? Like, I, I don't know if you see patients, but I'm sure, you know, from your perspective, you're noticing how people are being impacted. Well, I think, yes, I mentioned the isolation, but of course, people have fears and worries about their own health, the health of their loved ones, their job concerns, financial considerations, loss of support services, or the usual type of social interaction that we all enjoy, the usual type of workplace uh, interactions that most of us enjoy, uh, changes in sleep and eating patterns. Some people have had difficulty seeing their physicians, so chronic health problems have gotten worse uh, and clearly worsening mental health for many people, including an uptick in suicidality and completed suicide, an increase in substance abuse. So a lot of significant psychological factors at work. Up here in Canada, we're seeing you know a lot of fallout with opioid abuse. I think a lot of people are just frustrated as well. I, I know like I'm a, I'm a big planner and I like sort of mapping out what I'm going to do personally and, and business-wise. And I think it's sort of like a, a great abyss out there. Nobody knows how to plan, right? Like, how do you plan in a pandemic when you don't know how long it's going to last? And I think that's that's emotionally taxing on people. No, that's a great point because it's sort of a double bind where we're stuck in this unpleasant situation and yet we don't know when we'll be able to 
have an alternative uh, arise. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point, and it's frustrating and frightening, too. Another th- impact is, you know, obviously, you know, there have been deaths. I, I think, you know, everybody sort of knows somebody who's been affected, maybe not died from the disease, but certainly, you know, ne- very negatively impact. But people are finding it difficult to grieve because you can't, you know, congregate and there are restrictions on how many people can get together and, and even the services, religious rights. And I think that's, you know, inability to have resolution as a result of the physical fallout, I think, is impacting our, our emotions, too. That's true, and I I think it is really poignant that families who've had loved ones die generally can't have the usual sorts of ceremonial gathering that serve a significant purpose, and it's one very sad aspect of this. So help us unpack how stress of the pandemic and all the sort of things that we were talking about, how does that impact our brain functions? Well, I think the core of it is stress is linked to the fight-or-flight response that we most of us learned in high school it's a survival mechanism uh, reacting animals react quickly to life threats and a whole bunch of nearly instantaneous changes occur physiologically hormonal changes in order to help stand and fight or flee to safety but the body can overreact or the system can sort of get on track and stay on track when it should sort of tone down after an immediate stress is is resolved. But, you know, the physiology of it can get pretty complicated in medical terms, but basically the amygdala is an area of the brain related to emotional processing that sends a distress signal to the hypothalamus, and that's kind of a command center that releases commands to the nervous system, and it controls involuntary functions such as breathing, blood pressure, heart rate, dilation of blood vessels in the lungs, and so forth. But beyond that, after that initial surge subsides, the hypothalamus activates the second component of the stress response system, sometimes called the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And this is sort of a gas pedal that pushes down and continues. And if things sustain over time, then the hypothalamus releases a hormone, CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone, and that releases another hormone, adrenocorticotropic hormone, which uh, causes the adrenal gland to release cortisol. And cortisol over time can cause a wide range of physical problems, even though in the short term it's helpful to deal with stress. So sorry about the somewhat brief overview of a rather complicated subject, but the brain reacts to stress by, you know, invigorating the body in a number of ways. Okay, so that's in the immediate, right? That's sort of our physiological response to the stressors, which obviously... You know, it can have a cascade effect if you have constant stress, which is exactly what's happening to us in the pandemic. But there are long-term implications as well, right, for mental health? There are. There are also, I think this is significant, that just more recently it's becoming clear that there are direct effects of the virus on the brain. So people who have infections can have actual brain injury, but sometimes called neuro-COVID or brain fog. But other people, uh, you know, first responders, medical people, family members uh, can have, you know, anxiety and even post-traumatic stress disorder is is emerging in a wide range of people due to just the sustained 
sustained stress and anxiety with this. Yeah, I know a lot of people who, you know, as a result of the protocols are spending a lot of time in isolation. You know, perhaps they're widowed or they're already living alone or, you know, they're not in a good relationship with who they are living with. And right. that's that, that's adding obviously to the anxiety, but it's also causing depression. Are you noting that? Yes, yes, indeed. And that's certainly an issue across the world, frankly, at this point. Are you finding, you know, I touched upon it before, but, you know, a friend of mine commented to me, you know, with the government sort of handing out money, which is obviously necessary for those whose businesses are impacted, we're sort of all idling and receiving funds and not working. And for somebody like me, for example, who's worked their entire adult life, that can be stressful, but with that downtime, people are sort of drinking and, and taking drugs, and, and that has implications as well, yeah? Yes, it does. And, you know, human beings are intensely social animals, so this type of quarantine is really very unusual, and it is itself a very fundamental type of stress that uh, we're just not designed to spend so much time in, in isolation, at least the vast majority of us. And yes, that leads to some people to less healthy functions. They don't get enough sleep. They're not exercising enough. They're not eating well. As you say, they, they may indulge in drugs and alcohol. So people do need to try to take care of themselves better and think positively and try to stay safe and be well. We have time for one last question. Is In addition to sort of living a, a healthier lifestyle, do you have any top of mind ideas on how we can sort of help cope with what everybody's suffering with right now? Well, you know, I'll answer a little different question. I sure. think the pandemic will change and has changed society. I don't think we're going to go back entirely the way we were before. And some people, I think, have an enriched perspective on what's really important in life. And ultimately, that may be a silver lining in this. Well, I hope you're right about that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Daniel Wilson. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss peanuts and your blood sugar on The Tonic. Gentlemen, are prostate problems spoiling your day or waking you up at night? Ladies, are you tired of these disruptions? Discover Prostate Perform. Formulated with clinically proven natural ingredients, Prostate Perform helps reduce the frequency and urgency of men's bathroom breaks. Why wait? Prostate Perform relieves symptoms of BPH in men so you can both get back to enjoying your favorite activities. Available exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. And to ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Fine and Associates are family lawyers who dedicate themselves to dealing with separation and divorce matters every day. They specialize in custody, access, child and spousal support, and division of family property. It's their mission to resolve all issues amicably. But, if necessary, they're prepared to go to court and fight strongly on your behalf. Fine and Associates family lawyers are committed to achieving the results that you deserve to help you move forward with your life. If you're going through a separation or divorce, 
Call 416-650-1300 to speak to Lauren Fine for a free initial phone consultation. For more information, visit torontodivorcelaw.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dr. Samara Sterling is a nutrition scientist with expertise in the use of plant-based nutrition for the prevention and treatment of chronic diseases. She currently serves as the research director for the Peanut Institute and has also worked as a nutrition consultant for various community-based nutrition projects. She holds a bachelor's degree from Stony Brook University, a master's degree from Andrews University, and a PhD from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who don't know, we're talking about diabetes today. And what's the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Well, that's a question that uh, we do get quite a bit. And to answer that question, I'll just say that there's an organ in our body that's called the pancreas, and it produces a hormone called insulin. Insulin's responsible for keeping our blood sugar levels under control. When you eat a meal that may be high in carbs, Insulin is what helps uh, your blood sugar not to spike too much because it brings sugar into all the cells of your body. Uh, The difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes is that in type 1 diabetes, our bodies don't produce insulin or, or nearly not enough to do the job that it's meant to do. So you can think of that as not really having a key to get the blood sugar into the cells of your body. In type 2 diabetes, the body doesn't respond very well to insulin. We call this being insulin resistance. And you can think of that as maybe you have a key, but the key is sort of broken. So insulin's not able to do what it really wants to do. Currently in the United States, about 34 million people are living with diabetes, and that includes undiagnosed diabetes. And 95% of those cases are really with type 2 diabetes. So we have a lot more cases of type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes here in the U.S. So type 2 diabetes sounds like it's more of a, I wouldn't say lifestyle, but perhaps could be prevented. Is that right? Right. And I think uh, the word that you use, lifestyle, is is a key word uh, because we do hear that type 2 diabetes is considered to be largely preventable because in many cases there are lifestyle factors that are main contributors. Of course, we want to make sure that we uh, we don't rule out things like genetics and older age, which many of us, of course, we may like to have control over that, but we don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are things that we do have control over, and, and those are things that include getting regular physical activity, maintaining a healthy weight, reducing stress not smoking, as well as eating a healthy diet. So for example, when it comes on to diet, we know from the studies specifically out of Harvard University that if we decrease our intake of sugary drinks, refined grains, red and processed meat, and instead we uh, include more water in our diets, include more whole grains, and include more nuts, that actually helps to lower our risk of type 2 diabetes. So when we say lifestyle factors, as you mentioned, that is a key word there because there are many factors in which uh, this can be largely preventable. Okay, so you, you mentioned nuts a moment ago, and we're sort of discussing peanuts today. Can you explain how peanuts can help prevent spikes in blood sugar and tell us some of the research that might back that up? 
Sure. So peanuts are uh, what we call a low glycemic food. Uh, it has a glycemic index of 14, uh, for those who may be familiar. What that means is that when you eat a meal, for example, it does not spike up that blood sugar. Peanuts are also pretty high in fiber. What we find is that fiber also helps to do the same thing. It helps insulin do its work so that when you eat that food, the blood sugar doesn't necessarily spike. One of the interesting things about peanuts, too, is that we do find there was research that came out of Harvard University last year that showed that if you include peanuts in your diet, uh, it actually helps with long-term weight management, and it can help to reduce your risk of long-term obesity. The reason this is important is because when it comes on to type 2 diabetes, we're finding more and more that just having extra weight on our bodies, carrying around, that's significant impacts our risk for developing type 2 diabetes. So including a small uh, superfood like peanuts in the diet that can help with weight management, that's a key component. And then also the other thing that we find with peanuts is that uh, they do contain quite a few nutrients. We call these micronutrients. These are your vitamins and your minerals. A couple of them include manganese and copper. These are nutrients that are well known to help keep blood sugar levels stable. So it's not surprising that what we do see in the research, for example, there was a study that came out in 2016 that showed that if you replace in your diet, let's say, uh, animal proteins, uh, red meat, processed meat, with uh, plant proteins such as peanuts, peanut butter, that can actually lower your risk of developing type 2 diabetes by 23%. And this does not have to be something that happens all the time. Uh, so in no way does that mean that a person maybe needs to go exclusively plant-based, but just swapping out, uh, and I believe that study said about 10% of your daily calories. So just a small amount of your calories substituting that with peanuts or peanut butter, that can significantly reduce your risk for developing type 2 diabetes. So you talk about peanut butter and, you know, like there's peanut butter and then there's peanut butter. Are you still getting the health benefits of peanuts when they're processed into peanut butter? Yeah, that's a good question. So with peanut butter, we do still see some of the very same benefits. And what's interesting is that uh, peanuts, of course, you've got the whole peanut, peanut butter is ground up peanuts. And what happens when the peanuts are ground into peanut butter is that a lot of the healthy fats are sort of released, which is one of the reasons why maybe when you may buy peanut butter in the grocery store, depending on the type that you buy, you may see some oil at the top. That's actually healthy fat from the peanut butter. And that's one of the reasons that we tend to see the benefits uh, with peanut butter as well. So, for example, there was a study that uh, came out from the University of Incarnate Word in Texas a couple years ago. And uh, what they did was they gave people peanut butter with a meal that was pretty high in sugar with orange juice or maybe with some refined bread. And amazingly, what that study showed was that even as people ate peanut butter with their breakfast, it helped to keep their blood sugar levels down up to two hours later. Some studies even show up to eight hours later. So 
it, when we talk about starting your day right, starting your morning right with eating the right foods, peanut butter really has a place in that. So, yes, we definitely see the benefits with peanut butter as well. But, okay, so I want to clarify. When you're talking about peanut butter, are you talking about the natural peanut butter or are you talking about the highly processed, famous brands, which to my mind contain a lot of, of sugar and, and different oils as well? You know, that's interesting because a lot of people do think that maybe certain types of peanut butter may not have the same benefit. Mm -hmm. But really what we see in the research is that it really comes down to a matter of choice, whichever peanut butter you like better. The studies that I've been mentioning here did not specify whether it was natural peanut butter or uh, commercial peanut butter. Uh, All types of peanut butter tend to work quite well. Uh, The study that I mentioned from uh, Texas University, that one was actually just using regular peanut butter, so we do see that. And then one of the things that I'll mention, a lot of people don't know that uh, for peanut butter in the United States, by law, for a label to say peanut butter, it means that it has to contain at least 90% peanuts. So this is one of the reasons that uh, when you have whichever, whichever type of peanut butter you choose, you tend to see that same benefit there. Okay, so let's delve down a little bit. Let's talk about you know what is so fantastic about the peanuts. Can you break it down for us? Why are they so powerful as a superfood? I think you referred to them as. Sure, sure. I will say that one of the great things about peanuts being a unique superfood is that we see benefits in just a very small amount of consumption. We're literally talking an ounce a day. That's a handful a day, which is something that when you're trying to make small changes in your diet, small changes to your health, that's something that many of us can say, yeah, I can do that. That's something really small. Now, in terms of what the peanut actually contains, so peanuts are a great source of plant-based protein. We also know that within that, uh, peanuts are a good source of arginine. So arginine is an amino acid that helps to make protein. And peanuts actually have one of the highest levels. Why is this so important? It's because arginine has been shown to have so many benefits all across the body. They help to open up blood vessels so that blood can flow freely through. This helps to protect against many different chronic diseases. Peanuts are also a pretty good source of the healthy fats that I mentioned before. And peanuts also contain 19 vitamins and minerals. So when you're talking about including something small, again, in your day that helps to really give you that nutrition powerhouse that you need to help you get fuel throughout the day. And if you want to make sure that you have those nutrients in your diet, that's a really good choice to have as a healthy snack. Okay, we have time for one last question, and that is, are there health benefits to peanuts beyond those suffering from diabetes? So one of the things we've seen in our research is that peanuts and peanut butter benefit many areas of the body, such as the heart and the brain. And we also know that it helps with better cognition and mental health, especially in a time like we are living in today where many people are concerned about mental health, stressors, depression, etc. We're seeing that peanuts can help with that, as well as helping to provide energy throughout the day. So when we think about overall health and wellness, not just preventing disease, but feeling better and living a better quality life. Peanuts and peanut butter help you to do just that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Naomi Bassin, Dr. Daniel Wilson, and Dr. Samara Sterling. 
And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The November-December issue is now available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss medicinal mushrooms, how hyperventilation can remove alcohol from your bloodstream, the connection between exercise and weight loss, and the health benefits of chair yoga. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.